Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit about the Russo-Ukrainian War. Not too much, though. Uh, we'll be talking about the new alliance between China and the Solomon Islands. Talking about Europe looking for gold and how that might lead to some trouble down the line. And we'll talk about some of my predictions regarding the prospect of war between the United States and China. All this and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, I brought up that LNG terminal that Germany was building. And I found out a very relevant bit of information about it. Which is that it won't be complete until 2026. So, that whole plan about getting LNG to Europe, well, to Germany specifically, by ship instead of by pipeline well that that's a um, a pipe dream if you will <laughs> but uh so it looks like freezing is on the agenda for europe uh this year luckily for the europeans we are leaving winter and they have about uh nine months to get their act together and to solve their gas issues before they freeze because winter is cold and this winter in particular was uh, a menace because it just it just wouldn't leave it wouldn't leave I mean, it's it's april and we're still freezing nothing uh what but uh i would not like to be in europe come this winter so they have all of summer and they have the rest of spring and the rest of you know autumn to get their stuff together or else they're going to freeze now, for Germany, the option of opening the pipeline is always there, all right? So, the reason I really focus in on Germany here is because, for them, the pain that's going to come is a choice. It is, quite frankly, a choice. They, they don't need to go through what they're about to go through in a couple months' time. They really don't. But this is the choice that they're making. And so this is going to have, I believe, incredible implications, uh, short-term and long-term, you know. It's cute to talk about solar panels and getting rid of fossil fuels when you're going through the good times. Uh, but when you're freezing because there's no fossil fuels to heat your home and the solar panels don't work as well as they used to because it's cloudy outside because it's, one, Germany, and two, the middle of winter. It ain't going to be so cute then. And it ain't going to be cute when the windmills freeze. Now you can winterize them. But that's even more expensive than building them in the first place. And then they don't last very long. So. All that is cute. The green agenda is very very cute. Until the harshness of reality sets in. Then it ain't cute. So we'll. We'll really see over this year. I believe. The. 
deterioration of the green agenda as people primarily in the United States and in Europe and really, really looking at Europe here are faced with the reality that the technologies that are being presented to them as the ways of getting off of fossil fuels just aren't potent enough yet. Don't get me wrong. Solar panels and windmills sound great. All right. But the fact of the matter is the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't always blow. And even when the sun does shine and the wind does blow at the same time, it's just you're not getting enough energy out of it to power a city for more than a couple minutes. And so you're not even meeting the energy consumption of, say, a city because you need to meet that and then surpass it in order to store more energy. Like if you had the battery capacity to do this which we don't, but if you had the battery capacity, you'd still have to outproduce the energy consumption. You'd have to produce more energy than you consumed every day to store up enough energy to get you through the night. We are not at that level yet. The technologies just aren't at that point yet. And that's a very harsh reality that's going to become very apparent in Europe. In just what half a year's time when we start getting cold again i would not want to be in europe at that moment in time i'll say that much uh and we'll we'll see how they respond that'll also be very interesting to observe see how they respond germany especially because they again have a pipeline they have two of them they have Nord Stream one they have Nord Stream two Nord Stream two isn't even active right now they could activate it it's done but they don't want to We'll see if they reverse course on that when it starts getting cold again. But for now, we'll just have to wait and see. <clears throat> that is Germany and sort of a Europe as a broader whole, except for Hungary probably. Pretty sure the Hungarians are already uh, making deals with the Russians on how to get some gas. They have... Uh, we talked last episode about Viktor Orban, who won the election there. His party won the election. And their platform for this election was not getting involved in Ukraine. One in a landslide. So they're going to be making deals with Russia. They're not going to be freezing this winter. We'll see if other countries in Europe will follow that example. Because right? now the precedent has been set. Alright, that unofficial precedent rule, we get to observe it yet again. It has been set now. And again, it's hungry, so just all the more. Uh, more fuel to the flames of this theory. But the precedent has been set. You can make a deal with Russia. It's not an impossibility. It's always an option, just not the option that many countries in, say, the western half of Europe would like you to think about. But it's there. It's there. We'll see which other countries will reach out to Russia for energy. Because they're going to need it. And the real thing to look for there is to see how many countries start acquiring either rubles or gold. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about gold later on in the episode. Because I think we may have, well, Europe 
they have a problem on their hands. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Russia is demanding people pay them in rubles for their gas. Um, but then there's Turkey, who is Russia is now accepting the Turkish lira for all purchases of Russian goods, probably with the exception of oil and natural gas. But Russia is accepting Turkish lira for the purchases of Russian goods by Turkey. So you have the breakdown of singular currency, the singular world currency, which is the dollar, specifically the petrodollar. That system is dying and dying rapidly. And along with it, globalization. Right? Because the dollar, the petrodollar was sort of the basis for the globalization that we've come to know. And with the death of that singular means of currency that everyone was using, so too goes with it the globalization that was founded upon it. Now you're going to have deglobalization, but specifically regionalization. The Middle East is going to be its own thing. All right. Europe is going to be kind of its own thing with West, East, North, South divisions. You're going to have Asia be its own thing. And even then it's going to be more like East Asia, South Asia, and then in Southeast Asia. So three blocks within Asia, you're going to have East Africa, West Africa, South Africa, and North Africa. You're, you're going to see regionalization. You're going to see South America as a unit. You're going to see Latin America uh, integrated with the United States as a unit. And the Can Canada, Mexico, and the United States as a unit as well. This regionalization. That's what we're going to be seeing. We're already seeing the beginning stages of that right now as the petrodollar system and the globalization that was built on it dies. And, well, I've said enough about my opinions on the petrodollar. <laughs> Good fucking riddance. But, uh, yes, that's what we're observing. And it's very interesting to see. It'll, it probably won't come without some negative ramifications for basically everyone involved to some degree because it was very convenient, the globalization that we've, come to know so everyone's gonna have an adjustment period even china and russia as china needs raw materials they're a vast consumer of raw materials so switching up the currency that you acquire those raw materials in is definitely going to cause a shakeup, especially if there's disruptions like say armed conflict somewhere and there's plenty of potential for that i mean just uh, I've talked in, in great length about Israel and Iran on a collision course, and that's going to end very badly for Israel, but that doesn't mean Israel's going to take it lying down. They're going to bomb some oil fields before they go. You have China and Taiwan, and I, I think that one's up next. I'm pretty sure that the conflict that's coming up next will also be talking about that one this episode, so stay tuned. You have, of course, the elephants in the room. Russia and Ukraine causing food and gas prices to go up for every country that isn't an oil producing country and or a grain producing country of themselves. Uh, the price of fertilizer is going up too. So you have these. But again, I'll stress that the prices of gas in Saudi Arabia isn't going up. 
The price of gas in Iran is not going up. The price of gas in Russia, a belligerent country in this war, is not going up. It's because they produce oil. So the fact that prices are going up in the United States, even though we have oil, but we're choosing not to produce it, which means it's not Putin's fault that we're having five, six, seven dollars a gallon. That's a lack of production on our side. It could be fixed within months, but the administration says no. So disruptions like that, because you have rising fuel prices everywhere that doesn't produce oil. China doesn't produce oil. Right? They consume it. They don't produce. So major disruptions in the Middle East, which is where they get a lot of their oil from, are going to hurt them really, really badly. It's going to be really bad for Chinese industry if that happens, slash when that happens. So disruptions around the world. Uh, primarily just economic, but conflict can also play a role. Although I don't think that those are all going to happen at once. So at the very least, you'll be able to pick and choose your battles and adapt to one issue at a time. Like for now, we're dealing with high energy, high grain, and high fertilizer. So if you can nip those problems in the bud, you can deal with all of it. You can actually sidestep and avoid all the, you know the problems that come from those core issues. Uh, you can sidestep the side effects of them, so to speak. So, and then if there's, say, a conflict between Israel and Iran, and you have an, another oil shock, because Russia, for as big of an oil producer as they are, they're not going to be able to displace Arabia and Iran and Iraq and the U. They, they can't replace the Middle East by themselves. They're just not going to be able to do that. They they just can't. They don't they don't have the infrastructure to do that. They would physically be incapable of getting out the oil to the wider world even if they ramped up production in Siberia to match what was being produced in the Middle East. They don't have the ports, they don't have the pipelines, they don't have the they have a little bit of the rails but not enough. They just wouldn't be able to do it. So, disruptions like that, other suppliers can only compensate so much. Right? Kazakhstan can pitch in to the Russian effort, but they can only do so much. Yeah. So, disruptions like that, you'll have another energy shock. You'll probably have other shocks that I'm not even aware of because I'm just not exactly what you'd call an expert in the economics, although I have my preferences. So, disruptions like that. When China and Taiwan get into it, over whether or not China is going to be a unified country, um, you're going to have supply shocks in semiconductors, chips, and probably a lot of the design work for these conductors. So you're going to have a recession in that field, and because everything is electronic nowadays, you're going to basically have a massive shock to all other industries. One of the reasons why I advocate domestic production. Now, it's going to take a while for those Intel plants to get up and running. And when this conflict goes down, I'm pretty sure the plants in Ohio aren't going to be even halfway done being built. So that's another shock. You know, it, it didn't have to be a shock, truthfully. It really didn't. It's like 
semiconductors aren't a natural resource. You can build them anywhere if you are sufficiently determined to do so. But for a long time, countries just were not determined to do so. So now this is going to be a bigger disruption to global economy than it otherwise would be. And from that point onwards, you're just not going to have these sorts of concentrations of manufacturing. You're just not. Sure, China is probably still going to be the workhouse of the world, but other countries are going to have bits and pieces of their domestic manufacturing bases back. All right. Once all this, all this disruption and all this turbulence blows over and it's probably going to take at least a, a decade to get through the worst of it, and then there'll probably be new challenges that arise, but it'll probably take about a decade to get through the crises themselves and the disruptions and then to get over the shock waves and the side effects that come with them. So about a decade. And then you're looking at great degree of decentralization. You'll have manufacturing bases in China, you'll have manufacturing in Germany, you'll have manufacturing in the United States again, you'll have probably manufacturing somewhere in South America. I'm looking at Brazil and Argentina. You'll probably have manufacturing scattered across Africa. Right. Uh, and, I'm, and for that in particular, I'm looking at the East African Federation. And perhaps even Ethiopia. That's what I'm looking at. You're going to have India industrializing. Uh, Iran is already semi-industrialized as is. I mean, they manufacture all their own weapons. So you're going to have manufacturing there. Russia is going to be a big player. You're going to have a lot more places manufacturing instead of just Southeast Asia and the remnants of the American and European industrial bases with Germany having the greatest degree of their manufacturing base still in the country. Yeah. Instead of that massive imbalance, you're going to have a more smooth and leveled out work um, production area, you know, uh, global manufacturing. You're going to have more equally distributed global manufacturing with a good bit of it still centered around China. I, I don't see China not being the manufacturing powerhouse in two, three decades. I don't see that going away very fast. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. I'm going on a whole tangent about deglobalization and regionalization uh, off of Russia accepting Turkish lira for the purchase of Russian goods. You know, uh, I, shit, I won't complain. It's more content for you. Hey. But uh, we're going to move on from that and we're going to talk about uh, Pakistan. As last week, we talked about how the Prime Minister then, Imran Khan, had sidestepped a vote of no confidence by calling for new elections. But it seems that the vote of no confidence has caught up with him and he's been ousted. And now, Shabazz Sharif has become the new Prime Minister of Pakistan. And we'll see what he does as Pakistan's in a semi-weird place right now. They've thrown their lot in with the Russians and they're having small border skirmishes with Afghanistan right now. So, uh, we'll see where things go. They're on the best terms with India that they've been on in probably decades. And we'll see if he can continue these things and work out the border uh, with Afghanistan. Maybe he'll change course with Russia. Who knows? Uh, but 
will he be able to maintain the peace with India? That'll be another thing to look out for. Or will he be ousted? Similarly, for not, uh, I mean, for being too friendly with India. Because India and Pakistan generally don't get along very much. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see if um, things have genuinely changed and India and Pakistan are now going to be on speaking terms from this point moving forward. Or if it's going to revert back to India and Pakistan being at each other's throats and he's going to be the unfortunate political victim of that never-ending feud. Very, very interesting to watch. But uh, speaking of... Uh, things that are interesting to watch, we have the first round of the French elections. And in it, Macron has got about 27.6%. Marine Le Pen has 23.41%. Melan Schaub has 21.6... Uh, not 6... 21.95%, just barely missing the 22% threshold that you need to move on to the second round. And there's Zamour... With 7%. Uh, Zamor has asked his voters to vote for Le Pen. And Milan Schaub has asked his voters not to vote for Le Pen. But he hasn't asked them to vote for Macron. So we'll see what becomes of this. Uh, and whether people actually go out and vote the same way that they're being asked to. And the way that they have in the case of people who voted for Macron and Le Pen. So it'll be, uh, we got another couple weeks, though, because the next round of elections is going to be on the 24th. So not out of the woods yet, which means that some scandal can probably pop up out of nowhere and ruin someone's career. And we'll see if it's uh, Macron's or Le Pen's, although uh, it's anybody's game given the conflict in Ukraine and Macron deciding he's going to back the Ukrainians. So if anything bad happens to them, uh, beyond what a lot of the propaganda uh, attempts to make people believe, if something genuinely bad happens, like, I don't know, Kiev falls in two weeks, that's, that he's, he's gonna have a rough time in these elections. Like, the war for Ukraine has come at just the right time to where it can screw him out of an election. We'll see if that's the case, though. Because, again, elections are very strange things. You just have to wait and see till the end. And if we can learn anything from Libya, which is... The elections can be a very strange thing. Speaking of Libya, we're, we're still waiting for those elections. We're going to wait till June, I believe. And we'll see if the elections are actually held then or if they're... Delay it again. But at the very least, we don't have that problem in France. But we still have to wait till the 24th for the next round of elections. And then we'll have some conclusive results. I've been watching a couple of channels. Uh, well, not watching them per se, but I've been seeing the on my feed things about the French elections. But they're not over yet. So I'm like, I, I can't really talk about it too much because it's like, Everything I say today could be rendered useless, irrelevant, and worthless in just a matter of weeks when the second round comes in. And it's like, well, I could sit here and go, oh my goodness, Le Pen is uh, riding on Macron's butt 
she's gonna she's gonna eat him alive. And she's they're gonna have Macron president in France, and then two weeks go by, and Macron just shit stomps Le Pen in the, in the second round of the election. And it's like oh, so about all that shit I was talking. Looks like we got another uh, Macron presidency. Yeah, I I don't want to do that, <laughs> but I feel like. A lot of other people are going to have to do that. But uh, I'll just sit back, wait and see until the elections are actually over. And then I'll make my uh, another video actually talking about the results and what we might be able to expect from it. Meanwhile, energy and chemical company Ineos, uh, this is a British firm, ha is currently seeking approval from the UK government to begin fracking tests in Britain. They want to prove that the technology is safe and effective. Um, we'll see if they're able to succeed on that, given the uh, far left leanings of the British Isles when it comes to energy. And again, we, we might see the green agenda die here as well. Especially as gas prices continue to rise. Britain is an island. They have to import everything, so that automatically makes things a bit more expensive than they otherwise would be. Uh, so, having a little bit of domestic oil production might help, but we will likely, un actually no, we'll undoubtedly see people from more green-leaning parties get in the way of this. Even if they are able to succeed in their tests, you're probably going to see legislation put up to try to block it and then you're gonna have the winter come around and people are gonna get really really upset so we're watching a struggle unfold between people who are in favor of the green agenda and people who want to produce energy and have accepted that fossil fuels and or nuclear are the best energy and most potent energy we're gonna get in the current day so the idealists versus the realists with the idealists being the greens and the realists being the drill baby drill folks. We're seeing that struggle unfold, even in Britain. Uh, so yeah, we'll definitely think, look out for that. Speaking of gas, Italy is set to import even more natural gas from Algeria as they try to make up for the loss of Russian natural gas, uh, which shouldn't be too hard for Italy specifically because they have lots of pipelines that run through it. And even more being built. So. Italy's going to be pretty good in the near future. Uh, and then there's, there's Ukrainian President Zelensky. Who's now asking South Korea for weapons to aid Ukraine in its war with Russia. And we're going to talk about Ukraine in a little bit as well. There's a whole bunch of things that feed into the meat of the episode. Meanwhile, militant rebel group. M23 is retreating from occupied villages in eastern Congo. Yemeni presidential council leader Rashad al-Alimi promises to end the war through a comprehensive peace process. And he appears to be taking advantage of the two-month ceasefire which was brokered between um, he, the Yemen government-backed excuse me, the Saudi-backed government forces in Yemen who are fighting the Houthis. They have a ceasefire right now. So, 
he appears to be taking advantage of this to broker a actually lasting peace instead of just a ceasefire. The UAE has openly backed this council, uh, probably because they don't want to get bombed again by the Houthi ballistic missiles. But alas, that is the rapid-fire news, which we ended up chatting a bit through, but I still got some more to talk about, so we'll get into that in just a moment. Alrighty, time to get into the meat of the episode. And we'll start with a little, little briefing on the Russo-Ukrainian War. As over 250 Ukrainian Marines have surrendered in Mariupol as the siege continues and drags on, really. Uh, So, again, Europe is learning a lesson that those who are paying attention are getting a lesson in modern-day siege warfare. A small prisoner exchange saw 12 soldiers from each side released and sent to their respective sides, Ukrainians and Russians. Now, there's also been a very interesting development that I have noticed, and this isn't necessarily recent, but just something I've come across in observing the war for these past few weeks, and that is the perceived leverage that the Ukrainian government has. Alright? Now, in a normal world, the country at war generally has the least amount of leverage in any diplomatic setting or any diplomatic meeting that you can think of. Like, oh, you want a trade deal? Well, you're at war, so you're going to give me whatever I want or you're just not going to get it because you're at war and you need this more than I do. Or you're at war, so you want my aid? Well, you're going to pay a premium for it because I know you're going to pay it since you're at war. And you need these weapons, you're not going to say no, so I can charge whatever I want for these weapons that I'm producing and that I'm going to give you. You know, things like that. The country at war generally has the least leverage of any party to any negotiation. That's in a normal world. In the world we live in today, however, it's the reverse with Ukraine. Like, I, I've, and I'm really just blown away by it. I don't know if it's some sort of stunt. I don't know if this is just genuine uh, compassion for Ukraine or if there's some sort of corruption going on. Probably a combination of those two, genuine compassion and combined with corruption. But it's been so strange seeing Zelensky go on this tour of countries asking slash demanding weapons and aid and foreign volunteers and just going around pressuring other countries to get involved themselves in his war. And you have these news agencies, because I've also been trying my damnedest not to get caught up in any propaganda about the war, so I have to look out for narratives that are trying to be set. And one of the narratives is every time he goes out and does this, it's like the, the pressure from every press and news agency I see isn't on Ukraine. It's like, 
oh, how are they going to get it done? You know, they're they're being invaded. They're fighting Russia. Uh, they, they really, they're desperately reaching out for, no, 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 no. That's not how it's being framed at all. It's being framed as Ukraine has come to you seeking aid. How do you look if you say no? You know, it's like Ukraine pressures this country into doing more for Ukraine. And it's like, how how are you getting away with this? <laughs> how are you getting away with this? It's like, it, you're at war. You have the least amount of leverage possible. Like, two months ago, no one really even thought about Ukraine. Like, people go, oh, there's 100,000 Russian troops on the border with Ukraine. Oh, it sucks to suck to be Ukraine. Maybe we should do something. Maybe we shouldn't. No, 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 no. You know, that, that was the situation two months ago. Now it's, if you don't give aid to Ukraine, you're evil. <laughs> it's, how, how do you get to this point? You, you don't have leverage. And yet the, this guy's Zelensky, and I guess good on him for taking advantage, but he's going around on this tour of all these countries and going up to all these leaders going, hey. I need aid. You have to give it to me. You need to do more. As if the imperative was on the other countries to win the war for him and not on him to fight and win the war. And I, it shocks me. One, that he's doing it. And two, that other countries are letting him do it. It's Does no one see the leverage they have over this man? It's it's just it's it's shocking, it's so jarring, and I guess that's just another abnormality of this war. If Russia invading a country and then leaving the energy and the gas and the water and the Wi-Fi on, uh, so that they don't inconvenience the population living there, is one different way of fighting a war. Uh, I I guess. The inverse, the inversion of leverage, where the country who's not just at war, but is invaded and is not getting the land back that it was taken from it. All right. They're, they're not getting the Donbass back. They're not getting Crimea back. They're not getting the river. They're not getting the Dnieper River Delta. They're not getting that one back either. I almost said the Don, but that's in Russia itself. They're not getting that back. Chernayev is encircled. They're not getting this land back. Alright? Or at the very least, they're not going to be able to take it back with military force. They've proven that much that they're just not going to be able to do it. So, they are... If, if you're paying attention, and you know, you're not caught up in the momentum of the news, you can see very... Plain as day, Ukraine is losing. Like, R Russian logistics problems or what, whatever, Ukraine is losing. They're losing, and they're losing badly. So how then does that country go on a tour of the world with leverage to get what it wants out of other countries? And it's like, if Ukraine asks you to give them weapons... You're the bad guy for not giving them weapons. It's not, oh, you need weapons, well, you're going to pay up. It's, no, 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 no. We need weapons, so you're going to discount them. That's, that's just wild for me to observe. And it's so strange.
<laughs> but I, I guess I'll leave it there. But maybe you've noticed this as well. But I, I, I have to, I have to bring it up because uh, we don't have much else to talk about with regards to the war. But I had to bring it up. It was just it's just such a strange thing to look at. And every day that goes by, and every other leader that Zelensky talks to, it's it it's it's as though he's their boss. <laughs> like he goes to the prime minister of some other country, and he's talking down to them. Like, hey, you, you better give us their weapons. I don't play by my money. Like he's a, a mob boss, and it's like you're you're the country losing a war. How do you do this? It's, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna leave it there. <laughs> I'm gonna leave it there. And now we're gonna talk about. Uh, the Solomon Islands. Uh, actually, no, 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 no. Uh, th- that one will transition nicely into the other piece. So I'm going to start with Europe and how they're going to try to get their gold. Because uh, some news on the grapevine says that there may be a problem here. And, well, the only way you'll understand is if I get into the story. So... Europe is now looking to obtain more gold. Now, that alone tells you that the sanctions have failed. And if it doesn't tell you that the sanctions have failed, well, I'm going to tell you the sanctions have failed. Because there would be no reason for Europe to be looking to get their gold or even looking for avenues on potentially getting it back within the next, uh, some of it back within the next, like, five, ten years. If the sanctions were working. Because they didn't need gold before. It is only now after Russia demands. That you pay for Russian gas. In either rubles or gold. That they are now looking. At the status of their gold reserves. <clears throat> Again. I mean, I, I'm just going to really drive this home. Because. My job is. Partly to inform, you know, I, I try to be a half decent source of news, but usually that means I have to come into conflict, uh, conflict with what's being said on the larger channels, i.e. cable news, because if you let them tell it, oh my goodness, Russia's been sanctioned into the, into the damn stone age. But if Russia is losing the war, because that, that's another thing that many say that Russia's doing. I know I've made clear where I stand. I think they're going to win. But if Russia's losing, and if the sanctions worked, then why aren't they begging to have access to euros and the dollar again? Let me repeat that. If Russia is losing the war, as bad as the news says they are, and if the sanctions have worked as much as the government (laughs) says that it has, then why aren't the Russians on their knees begging for euros and dollars again? Why aren't they begging for us to lift the sanctions? Why are they instead demanding that we pay for oil and gas in rubles or gold? Why are the Europeans the ones who are now looking for the gold that Russia has demanded of them to pay? Simple question. Big implications. The implication that I see 
is that Russia holds the cards, not the U.S. and not Europe. All right. Those are the implications I'm saying. Now, only time will tell which perspective is right. That's my perspective based on some of the questions I ask and the strange answers that I get. But um, I'm pretty sure Russia has the cards here. Pretty sure Russia has the cards here. Uh, and what alerted me to this prospect and this story was uh, Rogue News. I was watching some Rogue News. If you don't know them, you should, you should look them up. They're back on YouTube, I think. They were sort of, they had like, strikes on YouTube, so they went to Rumble. So you can find them on Rumble. But Rogue News, uh, look for Gorilla V or CJ. But I was watching some Rogue News, and the other day they brought up. How many European countries uh, who keep their gold reserves in British banks. They also brought up how banks, those same banks that the gold is being kept in, uh, most likely have already sold the gold for money. And thus will have a very, very hard time giving the gold back because they don't have it. So, Europe is looking at the situation with gas. They need rubles or they need gold if they're going to not... They're not going to freeze into the Stone Age like they were trying to sanction Russia into. So, they need rubles or gold. They're looking at their gold. And the banks, primarily in England that they put the gold into don't have it it's already been sold which means that they can't give it back if the european countries any one of them really came up to britain specifically the bank of london and asked hey i need my all my gold i need all of it all of it every every last ounce i need all of it the bank of london wouldn't be able to do it they just wouldn't be able to do it. And therein lies a peculiar problem. A gold run on the banking system, which doesn't have it on hand, will very quickly expose uh, the fragility of the fractional banking, the fractional reserve banking system. Uh, another calamity that I believe we should do away with and abolish in law. You know? screws people over unnecessarily at that this is the banking system we have today where you put in 10 bucks in a bank the bank keeps uh two and lends the other eight so it, but you have a whole bunch of people doing this as well so if you have at least five people putting their money into the bank you can go up to the bank and say hey i want my 10 bucks back they can give it to you but if all five of you go up to the bank and say hey I want my 10 bucks back. Well, the bank doesn't have it. And then you, the bank shuts down and none of you get your money. That's what a bank run happens. That's when you have a bank run. We may see that on the national level. As European countries start asking around, hey, where's my gold? And when the people they gave their gold to start um, dodging questions... <laughs> And holding calls and putting 
putting governments on voicemail, those governments are going to go, where's my gold? And the banks are going to say, we ain't got it. And when that happens, you're going to have a gold run, uh, which is basically a bank run, but for gold, exposing the fragility of the fractional reserve banking system. Because if governments can't get all their gold from the bank, uh, again, this is the government. If the government can't get their gold from the bank, then regular people will surely begin to wonder if they'll be able to get all of their money, their cash, from those same banks. And due to the nature of fractional banking, of fractional reserve banking, I keep skipping over the reserve, Due to the nature of that system, if, again, if enough people tried to get their money, then the answer would very quickly become, no, you can't get your money. You know, going back to the little example I gave, where if you put in 10 bucks and the bank only keeps two, but five people do it, the bank has $10 to give you back if one of you and only one of you asks for it. But if all five of you ask for your 10 bucks back, well, the bank only has 10 the other the other 40 got sold, so it got lent out, so that the bank could make money off interest. It can't give everyone its money back. And we're looking at something like that maybe happening on the national level. And I bring it up not because I believe that it will happen. Not necessarily. Because, you know, the, the fractional reserve bankers have gotten away with this mess for this long, so... It's not far-fetched to say that they'll, they might be able to find a way around such a calamity like this. But if it does go south, it's going to be huge. So that, that's why I bring this story to you. It's something to be on guard for because this one's going to hurt you and me for that matter. It's going to hurt us a lot more than Ukraine-Russia. Probably even more than China-Taiwan, if I'm being honest. It's going to hit home because you're going to have the destruction of these banks. No, in the long run, do we need to get rid of a lot of these bankers who keep screwing us over economically? You know, maybe, maybe, we, maybe we should, but, you know, the short-term pain isn't exactly something to laugh about. Uh, and so, for this one time, I won't. <laughs> you know. But that's going to be a mess if it goes south. But if it doesn't go south... It will still lead to immense tension as the banks try to worm and weasel their way out of having to pay everyone at once, and they try to pick it off one at a time. That's going to create incredible animosities that will only harden the division between Britain and the EU, and it probably, depending on who gets paid first, who gets their gold back first, it may even create divisions within the EU as if the EU needed more of those. So, something to think about, again, because if banks can't get their gold, people will ask, hey, am I going to be able to get all my cash? And if enough people try to get it, the answer's going to be no, because the banks just don't have it all on hand. They loan it out. If the government and masses of people start demanding that the banks give them their gold and their money at the same time, the banks are going to have to call in the debts. They just, they won't have any other choice. Because they don't, they don't got it. They don't got it. They're going to have to call in the debts. Alright? And when they call in the debts, 
most people, most governments, most corporations, they don't have the money to pay off those debts, which is why they all rely on low interest rates so that they don't have to cough up the money because the, the debt just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you need the interest rates to go lower and lower and lower. Otherwise, reality and people's spending habits will catch up with them. And that goes for governments and corporations, too. That's why you have negative interest rates in some parts of Europe. But if banks have to call in the debts, people can't pay them, governments can't pay them, corporations can't pay them, you will have an economic crisis like that. And it will explode in our faces way bigger than uh, Ukraine, Russia, way bigger than China, Taiwan, way bigger than... uh, any crisis you can think of minus nuclear war. Alright? Because the debts have just been allowed to get so ridiculously huge that if they were to be called in, it would would just tank everything. And even Russia and China, who have manufacturing bases, even they would get sucked up in this whirlwind because they don't exist in a vacuum. Sure, Russia's uh, semi-insulated from rush, not Russian, from the sanctions that have been placed on them. The ruble has completely recovered its pre-war value, you know, before it got sanctioned to hell. It's basically right back where it was. But if the, if the entirety of the Western world just fucking implodes on itself economically, China and Russia are going to get hurt too. Uh, India's going to get hurt. Africa's going to get hurt. South America's going to Everyone's going to get hurt. Because the transition away from them, away from the West, wasn't complete. All right, We're only in the beginning phases of, say, the death of the petrodollar. Moving away from the U.S.-based world order to the more multipolar, great power system world order. We're only in the beginning stages of that. If the West just fucking dies... <laughs> if the West just fucking dies, everyone's going to get hurt. Everyone's going to get smacked in the face. And a lot of dreams are going to die with it. And that's going to create probably even more conflict similar to what the Great Depression did back in the 30s. Now, what becomes of that will probably be uh, at least a little bit different than, say, World War II. But I can't imagine you go through something that big without an armed conflict or two. So... Something really, really big. It'd be huge. It'd be the ultimate backlash. And I say this because it would be the result of us sanctioning Russia. Because Russia now demands gold. Gold is what'll cause this problem. Governments calling in their gold that they need to pay for their oil. And the banks not having it. This will be the ultimate backlash from those sanctions we have imposed on Russia. That means that we'll only have ourselves to blame for this, the implosion, the complete implosion of this economic system, uh, or at the very least, the sudden implosion of the economic system. You have the, those great reset folks want to kill the economy anyway, but they want to do it over time, so that you uh, own nothing and you'll be happy. But uh-huh. I'll give you a great reset, all right, and we'll do away with all these people, you know. Ugh. thinking to myself about people who obsess over depopulation and what I notice is they never 
they never offer up the loss of their own life as a solution. It's all these other people that have to die. And you know what? I don't feel like dying. So, I'm not a depopulation kind of guy. That being said, we now get to move on to... Uh, going back up, back, back up, back up. To the Solomon Islands who have made an alliance with China. Now, this one's a, a bit of a doozy. Uh, it's been blown out of proportion. I'll just start the story off by saying that it has been blown out of proportion. It's w- become way bigger than it actually is for right now. All right? But it is important, so we're going to talk about it. Because the Solomon Islands has m- made an alliance with China by way of a security agreement. And this is the thing that's got people's heads rolling. Now, this was brought about primarily by the riots that happened on the islands last year, where I think I brought it up in the, <coughs> excuse me, I think I mentioned it at one point. Uh, this had to have been a, a rapid fire news segment, because I, I remember reading about it at the very least. I don't know if I said anything or mentioned it for like two seconds, but I know for a fact that I read about it last year these riots on the Solomon Islands. And the Australians sent in troops to help quell the unrest. They put up troops to defend critical infrastructure. And what that did was it redirected the rioters towards other people on the islands and other places on the islands. And the rioters ended up attacking Chinese businesses and Chinese nationals who were living on the Solomon Islands at the time. This created... An immense uproar in China, who the Solomon Islands economy depends on, because uh, they have a massive Chinese business community there. They get lots of trade with China. China is just a really important country for the Solomon Islands to have a good relationship with. So they really didn't want to suddenly end up on China's shit list because of a random riot that broke out. So what they've done is they've allowed themselves to be roped into... Well, I guess not necessarily roped into... I don't think roped into is a fair way of putting it, but more so they've allowed themselves to go along with a security pact with China. And so this is where the alliance comes in, because this is a move that they've done and allowed to happen themselves. This is deliberate on their part, allowing this to happen to mend relations with China, a very important country for them to have good relations with. Now, for the moment, for the moment, the agreement focuses on the security and safety of Chinese nationals living on the island. It's not like a military alliance, so to speak, like many are making it out to believe, and what I thought it was until I read into it a little bit. So... That's why I say the story's been blown out of proportion. People are behaving as though this is a massive military alliance between China and the Solomons, even though it's not. At least, not yet. Not yet. Uh, And I say that because the agreement is open-ended enough to enable a potential Chinese military base or military deployment there. At some point in the future, maybe a naval base, maybe an air base, something like that. But it's not there yet. It's just not, it really isn't 
there yet or even close enough to being there yet to warrant the level of, you know, hysteria that's been drummed up about it. And uh, I I say hysteria because, again, it's just been really blown out of proportion. Uh, But it's... uh, I I really don't... (laughs) I, don't, I really don't know how else to say it. It's just been blown out of proportion. It's not yet what people are making it out to be. And it now it could get there, all right? It could, but it's just not there yet. It's not a full-on alliance yet. It's a security pack. It can grow into an alliance, but it's not an alliance. So that that's why I say it's blown out of proportion. Now, this is the... This is the prospect that has suddenly hoisted this tiny country into such a greater relevance than it had before. Because last year, when the riots happened there, it barely made the radar, even here on the podcast. But now we're talking about it as if it was the end of the world because China has an ally in the Pacific. And, you know, you know how people are with their U.S.-China Cold War. But, um... So, that, that that that's why it's suddenly become a lot more important than it was just a year ago. And that's the geography and who it's allying itself with. Who it's aligning itself with. It's not an alliance just yet. But again, there's fears that China could use this would-be alliance to cut off the U.S. from having access to Australia in the event of an armed conflict between the U.S. and China. No, I doubt that this is going to be the case for at least another five years. Uh, uh, again, it's because it's not an alliance just yet. This, but I'll, I'll call it an alliance for convenience sake, but it's really not yet. The alliance needs time to gestate and mature before we can seriously begin to talk about, uh, before we can seriously begin to talk about that, that kind of, that kind of deliberate, you know, intervention, military intervention, where China uses the Solomons as a leaping point for naval and potentially air operations in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But it, the alliance just isn't there yet. All right, it, it really isn't. But the possibility is there. Now, of course, uh, the current situation between China and the Solomons and them not being a super-duper tight alliance right now, that could change, and my estimations and analysis about this is definitely barring any rapid changes on the facts of the ground, uh, which could occur by way of a war, as the Chinese build things very, very, very incredibly quickly. But there is no war just yet, although... Taiwan is probably up next on the chopping block, so we'll just have to wait and see. And speaking of, now we're going to get into Taiwan for a little bit, specifically talking about my predictions regarding the prospect of war between the USA and China. Now, I've said before, uh, this is back during last year, uh, really, really early on in the history of this little podcast, I said that China and the United States 
the potential for them to be at war with one another would be at its greatest this decade, 2020 to 2030. And that from that point on, it would just taper off as America became more inward focused and sort of stepped back from these sorts of engagements. But because that takes time and China is also becoming China is also becoming more outward focused at the same time that we're going inward focused, it, there's going to be a, a, a clash, a period where you can clash because we're still outward focused right now. So while our outward focus isn't going to last for much longer at this rate, it's still there and it's going to take time to go away and that's going to overlap with China rapidly expanding its influence and its interests beyond its shores. So those combine with one another and then you overlay that with the fact that the U.S. world order does not tolerate countries that don't go along with what it says, you have the potential of conflict. Again, that potential tapers off from the, as we exit this decade, but we've only just entered this decade, so we're at the highest possible point. The highest possible probability for conflict between the United States and China is now, at the beginning of this decade, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that. So, th that was my prediction, and it may proved to be yet another correct prediction brought to you by this uh, little podcast of mine. As I'll, I've said many things, I've said a good many things, but that one may end up being the next correct prediction. Speaking of it, going back to some of the things I've said for context, I said that Ukraine would be the, the first domino to fall and not Taiwan. And while it does remain to be seen what Russia will do after the war, because Ukraine falling opens the door to Transnistria, it opens the door to disruption in the Baltics, uh, it opens the door towards Moldova, it opens the door towards all the other republics that aren't already in Russia's corner, because they have the Caucasus, they have uh, Central Asia, they have Belarus. So now, once Ukraine is gone, they can walk into Transnistria. They already have troops there. And from there, do they go after Moldova? Or do they go after the Baltics? Do they settle down and consolidate their gains? Do they double down on the Union state between Russia and Belarus and make it one country completely? Because they can also do that once the war is over. Ukraine falling enables a whole bunch of those to happen in whatever order the Russians choose to put out. I've also seen something about uh, South Ossetia voting to join Russia. So that would make them uh, an <laughs> the second rebel republic uh, to do this, even though they're not even the ones at war, that's Luhansk and Donetsk. So we might even see Abkhazia, another republic that Russia carved out of Georgia, because South Ossetia was carved out of Georgia. We might see Abkhazia also do the same, to vote to join with Russia, and we're probably witnessing the birth of the, the greater Russian Federation as we speak. But Ukraine falling, I said, would be the first domino, not Taiwan. 
And it appears that that is the case. Again, what happens in the former Soviet space is a major piece of that prediction. But we've also seen other dominoes fall that I I was not able to predict. I was not able to predict uh, from the Ukraine war. That is the visage of NATO power, the invincibility of the United States and NATO, the dream of European solidarity, the green agenda, the efficacy of economic sanctions, and the idea that, well, this is more recent, but the idea that Biden was the guy to stand up to Putin, all those dominoes have fallen. Now, I did not predict those, but I've observed them. All those dominoes have fallen. You add to that the impending death of the fiat monetary system by way of Russia pegging their currency to the ruble. Uh, not the... <laughs> their currency is the ruble. You add to that Russia pegging their currency uh, to a fixed exchange rate in gold. And I believe the rate is about 1,500 rubles per ounce of gold. Uh, where in America, the price is $1,957. So them fixing their currency to gold, even the petrodollar is now on borrowed time, uh, especially with the Saudis on track to accepting oil payments in Chinese yuan. Uh, And as a side note, uh, regarding the ruble to gold exchange rate, the ruble to dollar exchange rate is about 81 to 1 i.e. it's supposed to take 81 rubles to match just $1. But riddle me this. If it takes just under $2,000 to get an ounce of gold and only 1,500 rubles to get that same ounce of gold, then that has the effect of devaluing the dollar uh, because if we're going with the exchange rate of 81 to 1, then it should take... 162,000 rubles to get an ounce of gold. But by setting the ruble to gold exchange rate of 1,500 rubles per ounce, then that wipes away the dollar's value relative to the ruble and actually reverses the relationship between the two currencies. Because now it takes more dollars to match a single ruble and it takes less rubles to get an ounce of gold. So even if the dollar hasn't actually lost any of its value yet, the petrodollar is going to die. But even if the dollar hasn't lost any value yet, the ruble has now gained. Courtesy of gold, it has now gained in value to the point of being the dollar's superior. And that is huge. Now, I know for a fact that's something a lot of people really don't want to hear. But that's mainly because they're invested in their anti-Russian sentiments. But, but hear me out, I bring this to you not to, not to suck Russia's cock. I think I, I think I do that enough on this show, but I do it to encourage a slight change of perspective on this and to drive home my own point on the value of having sound money. Because instead of seeing the rise in value of Russia's currency as a bad thing, Let's take what they have done and apply it to our own currency. Again, we don't need the petrodollar. 
What we need is sound money. And the Russians are demonstrating this for the whole world to see. We need sound money. If they're going to peg their currency to gold, we should peg our currency to gold. After all, why should the Russians be the only ones with sound money? We should have sound money too. Now, the bankers and the Fed are going to hate that, but who cares what they think? We're the American people. All right, this is America first, baby. We should have sound money too. That is the America first position. We too can benefit from this tumultuous, earth-shattering period in history and emerge stronger from it. We can. We really can. The possibility is right there. We don't have to fucking be the big losers of all this. We can still walk away stronger and better than ever. Even if that means not being the world police. I'm not, I'm not upset with that. No. That, that, that's some perspective to think about regarding the situation with gold and currencies. But back to those predictions of mine. Back to those predictions. NATO's dead. European solidarity is dead. The green agenda is dead. Economic sanctions are dead. Uh, I didn't predict those, but the, those are the dominoes that have fallen. Ukraine, as I predicted, has been the first domino to fall and not Taiwan. But Taiwan comes next. I said that Russia would not be separated from China and used by us to contain China and fight some cold war against them. I said that much. And at this point, it's just a matter of common sense. I mean, if you stand, if you say you want an alliance with Russia between America and Russia against China, and then you say you stand with Ukraine, well, check this out. You stand with Ukraine is tantamount to you standing against Russia. If you stand with Ukraine, you stand against Russia. China stands with Russia. So why would Russia side with you? In an alliance against the country that stands with them. Why would they stand with you, who stands against Russia, to side against the country that stands with Russia? Doesn't make any sense when I lay it out like that. But you'd be surprised how many people do exactly that and expect <laughs> that Russia's going to want an alliance with us. But... I, I said as much wasn't going to happen, that they're, they're, we're not going to get that alliance. We're just not going to get that alliance. I said that a war in Ukraine would be an excellent moment for an invasion of Taiwan and that the other way around wouldn't work due to the nature of the conflicts. And the reason I said that was because this way, uh, I said the reason I said it would be this way specifically Ukraine, then Taiwan, and not Taiwan, then Ukraine. I said it would be this way because China can attack Taiwan any time they wanted, while Russia would not do the same. They could if they wanted to, but they would not do the same, as they are supposed to be helping the Donbass defend themselves, not attack. Defend, not attack. Meaning Ukraine had to make the first move. If there was going to be war. Ukraine was never going to do that. If the United States was preoccupied with a war. Over Taiwan. So in short. If war broke out in Taiwan. Then war would not break out in Ukraine. Until Taiwan war was over. 
Conversely, if war broke out in Ukraine, then war could or would break out over Taiwan. Just due to the nature of who the belligerents had to be for these conflicts to break out. But now that war has broken out in Ukraine, simultaneous war between China and Taiwan is now on the table. Oddly though, many people doubt China's ability to pull off an invasion of Taiwan. And again, it is generally the people who fearmonger the most about a potential invasion that hold such a contradictory belief regarding China's capability to even do the deed in the first place. Uh, from what I've watched, and I've watched a good bit because it's entertaining for me, you know, geopolitics is my, my piece of pie, so to speak. But many people will cite the weather and Taiwan's geography as principal reasons as to why uh, China can't. Uh, as the waters of the Taiwan Strait are rough and turbulent for most of the year, while Taiwan, the island, doesn't have many beaches that are suitable for amphibious landings. And what beaches they do have that are suitable for an invasion are heavily defended. Thus it is argued that the combination of these two factors, the shitty weather and shitty landing conditions, will greatly retard, if not completely repulse, any Chinese invasion. But, but, this is not 1944. This is the modern day. It's 2022. And if helicopters and airplanes can travel to and from the countries of China and Taiwan, then China can invade this island whenever they want. They, they can invade the island of Taiwan at will. That's a fact. It's just a matter of when they feel like doing it. But why would airplanes and helicopters be such important deciding factors in this scenario? I hear you probably ask. I don't know. Maybe you've seen it as well as I have and you're just happy someone's bringing it up. But why would airplanes and helicopters be such important deciding factors? Why I'll tell you. And when I do tell you, you'll genuinely wonder why what I say is never brought up by others who discover this topic. Drum roll and paratroopers. Paratroopers and other airborne troops carried by helicopters exist. The preoccupation of most strategists and people who worry about this scenario in general, the preoccupation of them centers on an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. But that is not the only way to invade this island. Airborne troops exist. I feel strange that I'm saying it this way. I sound condescending when I do. But they exist. They exist. And they will be used. Now, while paratroopers are vulnerable when they're parachuting down to the ground, assault teams coming in by helicopter don't have that weakness. Both of these types of forces are present in the Chinese military, and they both can reach Taiwan much, much faster than any boat could even dream. Yet, strangely, no one who discusses the scenario of China invading Taiwan even 
acknowledges airplanes, helicopters, or airborne troops. And I, I keep saying it's strange because well, it is strange to me, uh, especially because the people who discuss this topic and are most concerned about it bring up the repeated incursions of Taiwanese airspace by Chinese jets, which is something that happens year round. It happens with increasing frequency. There are more and more planes every time they do this. And it happens irrespective of how turbulent the water is in the Straits of Taiwan. Now, having said this, I should stress that I do believe China will employ an amphibious invasion when they go after Taiwan. But the exclusive focus on amphibious invasions will be a dangerous blind spot to those who are really serious about the idea of defending Taiwan. If you're focused exclusively on amphibious invasions, you're going to lose. You're just going to lose. You're going to get outflanked from the air. And now look, that's if you're serious, all right? You want to look out for that. I just like being right, so <laughs> that's something that I'm thinking about. Uh, now, defending Taiwan, if you're serious about it, you, you better factor in the air. I, myself, I have no interest in defending Taiwan. That's not my cup of tea, and it never will be. But, I'd imagine, at the very least, the Taiwanese government certainly does have an interest in defending Taiwan. But, that's my two cents on a lovely Monday afternoon and that my friends my lovely listeners is all i have for you today i do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast where we talk about how the world is changing folks but like always we are going to have fun watching it together now i've been your host hi sean wade and you've been listening to this week in geopolitics so till we meet again next Monday, servus.